Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Episode 15, Jude 14 through 15. Welcome back. As you know, we jumped from Jude 13 to verse 16, and we skipped Jude 14 to 15. And so for now, in our text, we have covered 14 triads, 14 sets of three key terms. The Spirit has used 14 triads to communicate His message that we are responsible and we must not fall prey to these apostate teachers, these dreamers. From the perspective of biblical numerology, 14 is a symbol of salvation and deliverance. And if we now and continually listen to this correction from the Spirit, we will be saved and delivered from the evil which these teachers have planned for our lives, as well as the evil that is to fall on all those who apostatize from the faith. Personal Judgment, the Prophecy of Enoch Now, let us step back to Jude 14 and 15 and address the prophecy of Enoch. This prophecy deals with the personal judgment that awaits those who pervert the grace of God and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude 14 through 15 It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, Yahweh, the Lord, came with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude starts by clarifying for us which Enoch we are talking about. Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, had a son named Enoch, and Cain even named a city after his son. But that is not the same Enoch. Jude was specific that he was addressing Enoch, the seventh from Adam, the son of Jared, a descendant of Seth. Back in those days, names were often prophetic and had extremely specific meanings, and the genealogy in Genesis gives us a clue as to why the Spirit ties the prophecy of Enoch to the issue of apostasy. But to understand this, we must do a little bit of background work and understand what was going on in those days and why that prophecy was necessary. To Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Genesis 4, 26. Pretty much every modern translation renders this passage in a similar way. People began to call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. But there are a couple of problems with this translation choice. First, We know that people had already called upon the name of Yahweh and had done so for some time. For instance, Eve declares that with Yahweh's help, she produced a male child. We know that to be Cain. And her children, Cain and Abel, brought offerings to Yahweh. Therefore, it does not make sense to render this passage to conclude that it was only at the time of Enosh that men first began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Second, the verb translated as begin is the Hebrew word shalal which has the following meanings, to bore through, to perforate or pierce, to lay open, to turn from a holy to a common use, 
which is akin to apostasy, to defile or profane. And finally, it also means begin. It's not clear why the Bible translators chose to use begin instead of the other meanings, which are all congruent and speak of a piercing, a turning, a profaning of that which is holy. By the way, the foreshadowing of the ultimate perforating or piercing of Yahweh Yasha, Yahweh who frees or saves, is unmistakable in this verse. Third, most Jewish scholars look at this passage and favor the more dominant and extensive meaning of the word shalal and say that this is when men first profaned the name of God. They, the Jewish scholars, translate this passage to indicate that it was at this time that men first called idols by the name Yahweh, and in so doing profaned the true name of God. They conjecture that the reasoning of the men of that day was that it would be a good thing to honor what God honors. And since God has clearly honored the sun, the stars, the moon, and so on, by cloaking them in such glory, then obviously we are to likewise honor them. For when we honor what God honors, we are in effect honoring God. It was a twisted, instinctual religious reasoning. But many believe that it was this wrong belief that crept into the hearts of men such that they were soon profaning the name of God by worshiping the creation instead of the creator. They started fashioning idols after the creation and bowing down before these idols and even called them Yahweh. This is the same pattern of instinctual religious reasoning that the Israelites followed when they came out of Egypt and made a golden calf and bowed before it and called it Yahweh. Fourth, this conjecture by Jewish scholars seems to fit what we find out about the condition of man shortly thereafter. Man had become exceedingly wicked, such that all his thoughts were consistently and totally evil. Genesis 6.5 Thus the rendering, which suggests that this was when men profaned the name of God, seems to be more fitting than the rendering, which suggests that men finally began to worship the name of God. In fact, that latter rendering makes no contextual sense. Fifth, the name Enosh in Hebrew means man, frail and miserable. Prophetically, Enosh's name symbolized the spiritual and moral decay of man and his rebellion to the truth. Man had become apostate and turned away, which is why the prophecy in Enoch deals with the judgment of apostasy. In contrast, Enoch's name means dedicated, and based on the testimony that is given about Enoch, he was 100% dedicated to Yahweh. After all, he was the man who walked arm in arm with God. Jude 14 through 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh of Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, Yahweh came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The code gives us some interesting insights into the passage. First, saying is rendered in the present active participle. The Spirit wants us to understand that this prophecy is still saying this today to each of us in our now. Hence, he wants our ears to be open to hear what he is now saying. Second, did you notice that Enoch's prophecy is presented in the past tense and not the future tense? I know it's a bit odd, but what it means is that the return of Yahweh is going to happen without any contingency, as Enoch saw the certainty of eternity future. Jesus is coming again. Remember, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is Yahweh. He sees all eternity at the same time, 
And it is from eternity future that he gave Enoch a glimpse of his plans. And from the perspective of eternity future, it happened. Yahweh came. Now, in terms of the holy ones that came with him, I am not sure why it is translated as 10,000s, except it was the translator's attempt to communicate that there were a lot of holy ones. But our mind tends to limit the idea instead of expanding it. Other translations say he came with countless thousands or myriads of his holy ones, which is probably a better translation. Now, if you read from the New King James, it says with 10,000s of his saints. But that is also not correct. Holy ones is what the Greek says, not saints. I make a point of that because of the second coming. Jesus returns with all the good angels, with his mighty angels and flaming fire, and with all his heavenly armies, which seem to include those good angels, but also the chosen redeemed of God. After all, we are told that he will bring his reward, which is all his bondservants, with him when he returns, as they are the joy that was set before him. Yes, when he is revealed, they, all his bondservants, will also be revealed with him in glory. Thus, holy ones, being a broader concept, captures both the chosen redeemed and the good angels which come with Jesus when he returns in judgment. When Yahweh comes, his purpose will be to execute judgment, or literally to bring about crisis upon the ungodly. The idea being communicated is that this judgment is not going to be pretty, as this will be a reckoning. It will be personal. Thus, he is not going to send his angels to do his dirty work. Jesus himself is going to bring judgment on all the ungodly for all the ungodly stuff they have done in an ungodly way and for all the nasty things that these ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It seems that both the chosen and the good angels are there to watch him bring forth their vindication. The fact that it is personal shows the seriousness of this event and its finality. This judgment will be universal. In the same way that the flood destroyed all who were not hidden safely in the ark, no ungodly person will escape. Jesus will convict the ungodly of their ungodliness. In other words, he's going to prove to them that he alone is good, that he alone is righteous, that he is Yahweh Sidkenu, that he alone is Yahweh Adonai, the Lord, and they are not. And at this time, it will be too late for them to adopt the principle of substitution which we studied in Jude 10 through 11. The time to choose will have passed. Yahweh's judgments, however, are true and righteous altogether. So there is no doubt that everyone will be thoroughly convicted of the integrity and veracity of his judgment. As we are told that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And by confessing that Jesus is Yahweh, they are confessing that he is righteous altogether. And his judgments, are indeed true. In terms of his judgment, it's important to note that judgment has been exclusively reserved for Jesus. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And since the bondservants of Christ are joint heirs with him, they will get to share in this judgment as everything that has been given by the Father to the Son is also given to them. Isaiah 54, 17 and every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of servants of Yahweh, and their vindication is from me, declares Yahweh. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. The bond servants of Jesus will judge both the world and angels. Over the centuries, believers have suffered terribly at the hands of the ungodly, 
both the seen and unseen. But on this day, the tables will be turned and they will take part with Jesus in bringing about the righteous reckoning. And as far as this judgment, he will judge the earth or the nations of the earth. He'll judge cities and generations of man. He will judge men and he will judge angels. The real scary part is that the standard which Yahweh will use to judge the behaviors, thoughts, and intentions of the heart will be his perfect righteousness. Not surprisingly, everyone will be weighed, measured, and found wanting. Believe you me, this is not how you want to be judged. It's not how I want to be judged. I would much rather accept Jesus' righteousness in place of my own and be judged according to his perfection in me. Personally, I love the substitution principle. It fills me with so much joy to know that I will not be judged according to my own goodness, but according to his goodness in me. That is the absolute beauty and glory of the name Yahweh Sidkenu. I love that name. And the good news is that his righteousness is available to anyone who wants to receive Jesus into their heart as both their Savior and their Adonai, their Lord or their Master. Not their Savior and their demigod, the little Lord who fixes what people mess up. So if you have not done that, I would think hard about your need to let his life be given as a substitute for your life, because no matter how you look at it, you will not measure up, and you will be found wanting. And when it is time to judge, it'll be too late to do anything about it. It'll be too late for apologies, too late to forgive your brother, too late to get on your knees, and worst of all, too late to turn. You must face eternity. What I also find fascinating about this judgment is that Jesus is going to not just judge a person's deeds, but he is also going to judge the impious or harsh words that have been spoken about him and against him. This judgment is very personal. Words, they're a big deal to God, and people will be judged for all the careless words which they have spoken. I believe the reason there is such a heightened attention to words that are spoken against Yahweh is because people follow words. They are seduced by words. They follow loud mouth boastings and flattery. They follow the blasphemous things that people say, and in so doing, turn their hearts from God to all manner of instinctual religious wisdom. For example, the one thing we know about both the first beast, the demon who will possess the man we call the Antichrist, and the second beast, the demon who is called the false prophet, and all their minions, both human and demonic, as well as these apostates, is that they are loud mouth braggarts who will mock Christ. They utter blasphemies against Yahweh and the people of Yahweh. It's what they do. We already know that they revile angelic beings and the spiritual things which they do not understand. But since they have no fear of God, they have no problem disparaging Christ and taking things away from the grace of God or adding things to the grace of God. And for this, they will be judged. It is interesting to note that Enoch originally delivered this message to the people who lived before the flood, the people who were evil through and through. And even though this prophecy specifically points to the second coming of Christ, with foreshadows to his first coming, it had a message for them as well, a message of the judgment and doom that would soon fall on them because of the apostasy, because of the way they perforated or pierced, laid opened, turned from a holy to a common use, defiled and profaned the name of Yahweh. You might be interested to know that the whole flood story provides for us a prophetic picture of end times events. The warning of judgment, the atonement which keeps us safe, the redemption of the people of God, the judgment of the ungodly, and the new life which follows this judgment. 
As with all things in the Old Testament, even the flood points forward to Jesus, to both his first coming and his second coming. Moreover, Enoch prophetically named his son Methuselah. And Methuselah prophetically named his son Lamech, who prophetically named his son Noah. Now, Methuselah could have had two possible meanings. The first is the man of a javelin, but according to Jones' Dictionary of Old Testament Proper Names, it means, when he is dead, it shall be sent. And according to the Bible, Methuselah died the very year the flood came. Jewish tradition even places Methuselah's death just seven days before the flood, immediately after Noah entered the ark. I love all the little ways the Holy Spirit leaves his undeniably supernatural mark on everything, even in names. By the way, Lamech means for lowering or humiliation. In other words, putting mankind in its place. And he just happens to be the ninth from Adam, indicating judgment. Whereas Noah means he will bring rest. Prophetically speaking, when he is dead, it, the flood, shall be sent to lower mankind and then he will bring rest. For those of you who do not know, Methuselah is famed for having the longest lifespan in the Bible, 969 years, which is a prophetic number according to the code. Methuselah's lifespan represented a time of grace. For as long as he was alive, mankind was spared. Thus being a type or a prophetic picture of grace, having been the eighth from Adam, with eight indicating God's grace, it was appropriate that he lived the longest, for where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. In the same way, right now, we are living in this extended time of grace, which I believe is rapidly ending, where God is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This was all pictured for us in Methuselah's life. But the years of his lifespan, they speak to us as well. This is a crazy, again, I love the creativity of the Holy Spirit. As I said, if you like numbers, he has numbers for you. Methuselah lived 969 years, which according to the code represents the number of man, which is six, surrounded before and after by the judgment and the finality of all things, which is the number nine. Judgment, man, judgment. Two cataclysmic judgments of man the flood and the second coming, each of which are preceded by a time of extended grace towards mankind, a time of Methuselah, so to speak. Regarding the number nine, just so you know, the following words each occur nine times in the Bible. Abuso, which means the abyss, the bottomless pit where bad angels are sent for judgment, an asbis, or the ungodly, who will be personally judged by God, and Jesus himself died during the ninth hour. It's the hour of judgment. Lastly, the number nine, three plus three plus three, represents the perfect judgment of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on 666. On the lust of the flesh, Cain, the lust of the eyes, Balaam, and the boastful pride of life, Korah, all of which will be represented and perfectly culminated in the three sixes of the beast, whose kingdom will be known by its religious boasts, six, its craving for wealth, six, and its abuse for power and authority, six. Okay, that is enough with the interesting tidbits. Let's move on to Jude 17 through 19. To get a free download of the full written transcript, 
with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T-H-R-E-S-H-E-R mediagroup.com. This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in.